From inside a house full of vampires, it's the IGN DigiGuys. So please welcome the world's most dangerous predators, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. Corey, to whom do we owe that outstanding opening? That was by Christina Young, a friend of Lance Taylor, if you know what I mean. Wow. What? <laughs> Wait, why did you not go on Facebook and see that my cracker recipe was a hit? Yeah, I I'm not going to talk about the cracker. Well, uh, this is it. This is the, the, the 14 seconds. We will talk about the cracker recipe I'm only going to use in berating we you got, and we got, for we got doubting... Some- we got some listener mail on the subject, too, so yes. I'll be reading that as well. And we have a Vox Box. Vox Box I can sing the mail. song today? You can do the song today. Excellent. Later. <laughs> Later. Um, you know what? We should start off with mention of a few kind of newsy item things. Uh, I know you wanted to talk about this. I'll let you. I did? Yes, you did. Yeah, this is interesting. Amazon is going... You know, uh, uh, we've talked in the past about uh, how... One of the studios has their own, uh, I mean, a, a couple of DVD distributors have their own, you, you know, we make it when you order it program. And that allows them to not have to spend money cranking out 50,000 discs for some 1940s yes. movie no one will ever see. Yeah. You, if, you, if, if you want it, they'll make it for you, but only if you order it specifically. Now we have Amazon. They're about to premiere something very, very similar called Never Before on DVD Store. So they have this never-before-on-DVD store in collaboration with all the major studios, and they'll sell films and TV shows, and they'll only, they'll, only, they'll only burn the DVD when you specifically order it. Otherwise, there will not be like a print run of DVDs for some of these movies. Now, what's interesting is that some of the burn-to-order DVDs we've discussed in the past have been good movies. Movies yes. that you have heard of yeah. that we can't understand why they couldn't crank out 10,000 of these things and sell them. The Amazon store, not looking, as, uh, not looking as hardy in terms of its selection of movies. We have, you know, The Waltz King, Child of Glass. You know, uh, TV-wise, it might be a little bit better. Johnny Quest is kind of cool. Tarzan is okay. But otherwise, there's not a whole lot going on here of value but it is interesting that the studios no longer want to because when dvd first came out the studios released everything yes everything was released on dvd it was the hot new thing it was going to change the world everyone loved it now they're not releasing every little thing on dvd anymore and they're certainly not releasing every little thing on blu-ray now it's become we have a huge library it's going to sit there unless john q public specifically wants it True. And I, I understand the thought process behind that. I would, I especially understand it when it comes to movies of this caliber. Now, if Lawrence of Arabia was, you know, burnt to order, that'd be a problem. Yeah, no, that's not going to happen. But it's not going to happen. So we nope. have this Amazon never before on DVD store, which is interesting. It is. It is. Uh, and and in other news, uh, sort of somewhat related, this whole, the release window thing is is turning into a very interesting fight. You know, Redbox does not want to uh, accept any uh, any uh, changes in the release windows. Uh, some of the studios are now tinkering with release windows as far as Netflix is concerned. Like um, like Disney is extending the window on kids programming to Netflix. 
Uh, this is the next little experimental area to see just how elastic they can make the whole release window concept. I don't know that they can. Well, because the, theaters are gonna are gonna fight back and well, theaters always you, theaters. It, 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 it's the same fight all, over every time. and over again. Yeah. You know, last time I mean the, the last big skirmish was Alice in Wonderland. And I don't blame the theaters for defending their turf. Of course not. They, don't, know, they get such a small piece of the pie anyway. They, they, it's funny because they get such a small piece of the pie. And what studios forget is that it's theater performance. And I've said this before. It's theater performance that sets the value Absolutely. of a Blu-ray property. Yeah. So if you eliminate theaters from that equation, all of a sudden all these DVDs that you're hoping to sell a million units of. But that's not what they teach at Stanford MBA school. What? And uh, I'm also fascinated by all these lawsuits about the uh, over the uh, the new um, uh, dish DVR that uh, skips commercials. I, so, you you followed that, right? I I'm up for anything that, that skips commercials. Yeah, no. Except it, that you know what commercial I like? I like that of course because the, the the only network I watch is the MLB Network, and I like that commercial where uh, it's for a PlayStation Three baseball game. Yeah. And it's a 60-second spot. Now, you don't see 60-second spots very much anymore. But in this spot, the Chicago Cubs have won the World Series. And there's celebration. And the music is perfect because it's not celebratory music. It's almost it's almost dour, apocalyptic music. And then at the end, of course, it turns out that the guy's playing the, the PlayStation 3 baseball game. I like that commercial. Otherwise, skip them all. Okay. You know what commercial I like? You like the one with the uh, uh, with the deodorant, where the, where the guy's like half a horse, half a man. I, I, I like "Don't Attend Your Own Funeral" as a guy named Phil Shifley. I love all those commercials. Those are funny. <laughs> those Directv commercials are funny. I like every yeah, one of those. I, you know the, why? The, you know why they're brilliant? Because every line is a, str- a, is a joke. Every line is. is its own little joke. It's a, but it's but it's a stream of consciousness. It's a it's a connection of events. That are so, I won't say random, but they're so extreme that that it takes it takes you so far from one to the next one to the next one. They're just these enormous leaps of of misfortune, and uh, you know don't don't wind up in a ditch. Don't watch your house explode in thirty seconds. You go from you know nothing on television to watch to your catastrophic life changing event, and it's just those really are fun. great. They're great. They're terrific. Don't attend your own. Thing. All right, the, all right. The uh, the uh, Chicago Cubs all commercial right. and the Directv commercial. Yes, those two are great. The rest of them skip. Totally. Anyway, so it'll be interesting. All these all these uh, lawsuits flying over the uh, ad skipping DVR, and that'll be very interesting to see how that all shakes out. Because remember, they tried to stop the VCR thirty five years ago. The, you know that, what? That didn't work everybody out. everybody tries to sue their way out of all these new technologies, and in the end, you've just got to learn to live with it and make it work. You know you. what? You know what? Make better commercials. So, quite simply, make better commercials. And uh, you know, I realize everybody thinks that you know the end of advertising is the end of their business model, but maybe not. You know, it's uh, progress is progress. It's not always comfortable or easy. So anyway, well, let's get around to some uh, some Blu-rays and DVDs and uh, fun stuff before we get into the uh, listener mail and the Vox box. Um, uh, you know what? New movies. Let's let's just burrow through new movies. Finally, here, way oh my going gosh, for the new just movies. So friggin' many of them. It's unbelievable. Uh, Man on a Ledge has went would is one of those early releases from this year, and this is why we're kind of in the doldrums as far as DVD and Blu-ray releases right now. Because if you go back about three weeks, ten weeks, whatever it is, the whatever the, the twelve weeks, the window now, we're into January and February movies. That's what's coming out on Blu-ray right now. And of course, we get one of the uh, big stinkers of the early part of this year, Man on a Ledge. 
Good freaking grief. Sam Worthington was the it guy for all of 10 seconds. and uh, It's just bizarre. You and know he what? starred in two enormous franchises. Avatar, big franchise, turns it's going to be, uh, and uh, Terminator. You know what? It's and now just, it's over. It's over. It's really over. Uh, this is you know even what? Wrath of the Titans or the Mark, Titans movies are terrible. No, that, Mark, I'll give you I'll give you one guess. Uh, so tell me what Man on the Ledge is about. It's about a woman in an elevator. Exactly. Uh, this is this is where you just lay it out there in the title and hope that people uh, go just for the visceral thrill of what they think the movie is, which is exactly what it is. Uh, it, it reminds me a little bit of Phone Booth in some respects. It's kind of the same, the same gimmickry, but it's just not that well made, and it just feels slapped together. It feels like a concept in search of a story. Um, a decent uh, Blu-ray transfer from Summit. It's okay, but Summit's got to start doing better than this, seriously. The Summit Lionsgate Alliance has got to uh, start yielding better movies overall. Uh, Jamie Bell is in this thing as well, who I also think is a very, very underrated actor, and he's not getting very good parts. Ever since he grew up and out of his Billy Elliot phase, he's just been kind of at a loss of for parts. Um, Elizabeth Banks, whatever. Anthony Mackie, uh, Ed Harris... You guys, you got to do better than this for me. Uh, Mark, oh, what do you got? Way. You're such a curmudgeon. Yeah. So I'll talk about something better. Actually, I won't. I'll talk about Gone. Okay. Uh, Gone is a uh, thriller from uh, February, which, of course, as we all know, like Wade said, is the uh, is one of the uh, doldrum months of the year. And uh, this stars Amanda Seyfried as a uh, girl who uh, had escaped from a kidnapper years ago and now the kidnapper's back for her sister in a world <laughs> where your sister gets kidnapped too. Okay. Oh, uh, this is uh, this is not very good. I I'm not quite on the Amanda Seyfried uh, bandwagon. I think she's uh, she's still a little uh, twee and doe-eyed, and I can't really buy her as oh, a. She's badass. so doe-eyed. That's exactly the description. She's totally doe-eyed. <laughs> she's, she's Bambi. She's not even. In fact, I won't even say doe-eyed. I'll say she's like cookie doe-eyed. <gasps> cookie dough. It always goes back to cookies on this show, doesn't it? Oh, you said it, not me. <laughs> I'm, I'm the one who takes crap for talking about food all the time. Don't don't get me started on food. Anyway, so uh, this is a uh, thriller, and uh, it's all not very thrilling. In, in fact, like the whole dramatic uh, finale, the whole big confrontation at the end is just mm-hmm. terrible. So this is, again, this is a movie that didn't quite work out, so uh, it gets dumped. This is Summit also. It gets dumped in February, and that's where it belongs. It's just bad stuff. I know. You know, this being the week of Memorial Day, um, it is a suitable time to release a movie called Memorial Day. Mark, how about this for a tagline? Two generations, two wars, one story. That's great. Is that, is that good for a, for a commercial, for no. a trailer? No, maybe not. It is not. All right. Well, anyway, uh, this is a, a well-intentioned, somewhat sanctimonious, not brilliant, not horrible, very middling movie that for people who uh, want a movie that really pays tribute to the troops but doesn't sort of step in any dangerous uh, territory, doesn't hit any quicksand, doesn't hit any landmines, this is perfectly fine. Uh, it, uh, it it really is one of those sort of multi-generational military uh, salute the troops movies and uh, it's not a war mongering movie it's not a chest beating ch- you know chest thumping patriotic uh, movie like you might get out of uh, John Melius or somebody but 
it uh, it's also not terribly deep or anything. So so James Cromwell, who is actually something of a, a an avowed pacifist, and it's kind of odd that he would show up in this. But James Cromwell is uh, is very good and really the anchoring presence here as the uh, the crusty old grandfather who has these. Uh, you know, these World War II memories, and uh, then his grandson grows up to go to Iraq, and, you know, fill in the blanks yourself. That's the way it goes. But uh, it's out on Blu-ray, and uh, if you're still feeling really patriotic in the aftermath of Memorial Day, go ahead and uh, rent, not buy, the movie Memorial Day. Wait. Ending that on dramatic fashion. Go Thank ahead you. and rent. Thank you. Memorial Day. Uh, wait, Lynn Ramsey has only made three feature films, and um, two of them were very, very promising, and she's just a terrific director, and I really like her a lot. And this one drove us both crazy. And this one, we need to talk about Kevin, drove us both crazy. Now, a Morvern Caller was her last film. That was in 2002. Was wonderful. Which is a terrific film. So we had to wait 10 years for oh. Lynn Ramsey, who did Ratcatcher, which I love, and Morvern really Caller, which I like a lot. We had to wait 10 years for her new film. And here we have a movie that really made me angry on the strength of or weakness of one performance and I won't even blame it on the performance I will blame it on Lynn Ramsey's guiding of the performance the movie is about a mother played by uh, Tilda Swinton uh, whose son is Damien in fact he's not just Damien he makes Damien look like 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 Shirley Temple he he is a psychotic little twisted son of a bitch and that's the problem with the movie this is a chi- this is a devil child who should have gone straight into a therapy or an asylum. G- get him foster parents, any bloody thing. Put him on lithium. Give him medication. Good grief! Now here's what the hell. Now, I understand what Ramsey was going for. Essentially, the movie is yeah, a, I do too. essentially the movie is a memory piece mm-hmm. where the Lynn Ramsey character looks back on. The life of her child. The, to try the Tilda to, Swinton character. The Tilda yeah. Swinton yeah. character looks back on the life of the child to determine what went wrong that made the child do a terrible thing that happens in the movie. She did not institutionalize him the second that he exhibited satanic behavior. So, so that's be, what it was. Yeah. So because this is a memory piece, people oh tend gosh. to inflate their memories. You know, yeah. love becomes more dramatic, and, oh, and, sure. and the pain becomes more horrible because it's all in your memory. So I understand why I understand what she was going for, but the result yeah. is whatever the the kid who plays the uh, the fifteen year old he is directed to just the most flamboyantly ridiculously he's insane he is the most ridiculously flamboyant heights of cartoon evil I have ever seen, and I could not stop laughing. I was the only person in the theater. People were riveted by this film. I could not stop laughing. I know. I agree with you. I, I know a lot of people that just saw it at Cannes, and they thought, oh, my gosh, it's just, it just so pushes the envelope. It's like, no, it doesn't push the envelope. It's insane. The child needs to be institutionalized. He is psychotic. But, uh, this but is like hey, the most insanely, unacceptably psychotic child I have ever seen in a movie. He truly does make Damien look like uh, the kid next door. But it's no, but ridiculous. I, but I can justify his behavior because that's how she remembers his behavior. The problem is that uh, either way, the kid is still just could not. I could not stop laughing at this kid. I'm going to compare this to another movie that came out earlier uh, last year, which is it was an Anchor Bay film that they threw out into theaters in, for like ten seconds, starring Michael Sheen and Maria Bello, called Beautiful Boy. Which is so much better on so many levels. And it's basically the same kind of a thing, except the kid is human. And you don't see much of the kid. You know, it's about two parents who send their kid off, their seemingly normal kid, to school one day. And then they hear about a school shooting. And sure enough, he's, like, killed his classmates and killed himself. And it, it, the, the movie is about 
how they question themselves. What did they do wrong? Where did they go wrong? And it tears their marriage apart and brings it together and tears it apart. And Maria, it's the best thing Maria Bello's ever done. It is an incredible character study. It does what this movie doesn't do, which is it, it gives you honest emotions and real people. And this thing just felt like such a fabricated cartoon. I, I just, I drove me crazy. Or what you, or what you could do is... What could you do? Uh... You could blow off both of those and go listen to uh, Pearl Jam's Jeremy. Sure you could. Which is uh, similar. Now, Mark... Well, it's about a kid who killed himself, but I'm just saying. Now, Mark, those those colored waxy things that kids use to uh, to draw pictures and stuff, what are they called? Huh? Crayons? Yes, yes. What, what, ha- what would you call it when people stick one of those up their bum? Up their bum? Yes. They would say, ouch. It, they would call it a Crayola anus. Yeah. Right, right, isn't that isn't that right? And that's exactly what this Ray Fiennes movie is. This is uh, based on Shakespeare's play Crayola Anus, right? Is that how I pronounce that? Uh, I'm not looking at you. Okay, that's great. Thank you, uh, Coriolanus. I don't know why, it, where where that name came from. Obviously, Shakespeare didn't didn't realize that it was going to be uh, the butt of jokes, so to speak. Anyway, uh, Ray Fiennes, for his uh, directing debut, and he comes from a very talented family, mind you. Ray Fiennes' sister uh, is a very talented filmmaker. Rafe, I find less so. He decided to take a uh, somewhat, well, do, you, do we want to call it a minor play by Shakespeare? I mean, Coriolanus is, uh, to my mind, not great Shakespeare. But anyway, it, he wants to make a comment about modern-day militarism and fascism, and uh, he goes and he, he made a, a modernized adaptation of Shakespeare's Coriolanus. The problem is, and it's uh, John Logan did the adaptation, um, the problem here is this is like 56% of Coriolanus. And I was trying to figure out while I was watching it why it just felt so fragmented and why it was just driving me completely insane. And I'm not one of these people who thinks that every Shakespearean adaptation for the movies needs to be a, like a perfect adaptation word for word. Because I think Olivier's Hamlet, as truncated and edited as it is, is pretty damn good. Uh, you know, and, and that's only like half the play. But it's still really good. Um, but the edits in this are not sensible edits. There are monologues that just drop off in the middle of uh, nothing and don't ever get to a point, and it's just, it's a very poor adaptation. Uh, that being said, Gerard Butler, not terrible. Um, he's okay. Uh, Ray Fiennes in, in the title part, uh, aptly psychotic. Uh, some good supporting parts from Jessica Chastain, who was in Everything last year, and Brian Cox, who's always good and stuff. Vanessa Redgrave even shows up. But uh, I'm sorry, I ju- it just didn't wow me. Mark, did it wow you? No, it actually, it, it reminds me of something that Julie Taymor might have done. Yeah, I agree. And, it, I, and I'm tired of Julie Taymor. I am too. Well, so anyway, it's on Blu-ray. It's a Blu-ray DVD combo disc. Uh, it certainly looks decent, uh, but it doesn't blow you away. And that's the other thing, a lot of handheld photography in this. It's not visually uh, a real dazzler, and it doesn't try to do anything other than to sort of show you gritty verisimilitude. So... Don't expect to be floored by the Blu-ray, but it's certainly uh, very, very competent. And, uh, you know, this was a Weinstein Company release, one of their handful of sort of misfires at the end of the year, uh, released by Anchor Bay. Oh, wait. Um, I, uh, an odd recommendation for people who like maybe John Cassavetes or maybe neorealism or maybe the film On the Bowery, which Wade and I have talked about uh, admiringly. Mm. A movie called Dirty Old Town. And Dirty Old Town was uh, directed by uh, two people, Jennifer uh, or Jenner first and Daniel B. Levin. This is an interesting story, black and white, 
um, very impressionistic, again, kind of neorealistic. It takes place in uh, the gritty streets of New York, and it, uh, a lot of it takes place in the Bowery, uh, a lot of it takes place in the village, and uh, it's about this guy, this shopkeeper, who, this landlord who's got like three days to pay his rent. So how's he going to pay his rent? It's very exciting, Wade. How, how does he pay his rent? Does he cut the blue wire or the red, <laughs> red wire to pay his rent? But uh, you know, uh, as we as he as we as you sort of go through some of the uh, dirtier, danker areas of New York, uh, you realize that this thing really is kind of a Cassavetti esque trip. Uh, you know, on the onto the mean streets, and I kind of thought it was interesting. It's it, some of it is a little overwrought. I think that maybe they can kind of ratchet down the. The the uh, the total melodrama and the complete I'm going to be John Cassavetti sort of deal, but um, I think that in moments this movie uh, Dirty Old Town kind of works. It's not on Blu-ray; it's only on DVD. But still, you may want to check out Dirty Old Town if you're uh, into that kind of uh, you know gritty black and white 16 millimeter looking kind of thing. Interesting, cool, groovy. Always interested in something funky. Uh, I got a couple of uh, Miramax library releases here, and uh, there's a lot of Miramax stuff still to uh, be released, and these are Miramax library releases coming from Echo Bridge. This is the stuff that just kind of gets thrown out there these days. Uh, And one of these, well, I'm going to recommend them both, and I'll tell you why. Uh, This one is The Road Killers, starring Christopher Lambert and Craig Sheffer, two guys who have zero careers right now as legitimate actors. And that's kind of sad because Christopher Lambert was Tarzan and Craig Sheffer was in uh, River Runs Through It along with uh, Brad Pitt. What happened to his career? Um, The Road Killers was originally called Road Flower. And I I have a kind of a soft spot uh, for this film because uh, my wife worked on it and it was produced by a good friend of ours. So... I uh, I still have a soft spot for it, even though it's kind of exploitation fare. Basically, Christopher, uh, Christopher Lambert plays a uh, a dad who, with his family, they run afoul of a bunch of uh, psychotic gangster-type loons on the road uh, run by Craig Sheffer. And it, it, let's call it a home invasion robbery cro- movie crossed with uh, a Mad Max movie, kind of, sort of. Anyway, uh, you know, straight-up exploitation kind of fare. Christopher Lambert is fine. Sheffer is fine. Uh, this comes from the Serafian family. If you don't know about the Serafians, they've kind of disappeared a little bit. Darren Serafian directed it. Uh, his brother Teddy wrote it. And uh, the last big thing Darren did was that skydiving movie, Terminal Velocity, with Charlie Sheen, which didn't do anybody any good. And I guess now he mainly does TV. And their dad, of course, uh, is a you know veteran uh, character actor. But, um, and not to be uh, confused with the Kardashians, by the way. We want to keep those two Armenian families very, very separate. Uh, But you know what? It's a perfectly acceptable film and a nice thing to check out as a rental. Uh, The next film is The Warrior, and I just, this this film is so freaking brilliant, and I feel so bad that it did absolutely no business. This is uh, directed by Asif Kapadia. This was his first film, and he did the documentary Senna this last year, which it just rocks. Yes. And between the two films, he made a horrible uh, erotic thriller that, that went nowhere. And uh, fortunately, he's, he's right back on track. I, uh, I've actually talked to him a few times. Really talented guy. This won all kinds of awards uh, in the UK. And then it was turned down for Oscar eligibility as a foreign language submission from the UK because Hindi is not a language of the United Kingdom, apparently. That's not right. Stupid move. 
Anyway, it uh, you know Asif Kapadia comes from uh, Indian extraction. He's a British citizen, so he made a film that sort of uh, it was a, it's a British film, but it takes place in India in medieval India. And the amazing Irfan Khan, who of course plays the inspector, uh, many people might remember in Slumdog Millionaire, um, he plays a an assassin who decides for a war- local warlord who decides he doesn't want to kill anymore. And when he and his young son flee. Uh, another assassin is sent after them for daring to abandon the employ of this warlord. It is a powerful, pastoral, philosophical, poetic movie that wound up in the Miramax vault. And it kind of got buried, and it was winning all these awards, and then like two years later, it finally got released after Bob and Harvey cut their deal and exited, and they dumped all the remaining films that were sitting in the Miramax library, and it was just so sad. It just it, it had an unceremonious release over the summer, and uh, it went nowhere. And it's so sad. It's such a good film. But here it is uh, among the Miramax films in the Echo Bridge uh, tentacle, uh, and you got to check it out. It's just a great film if you have a chance. Not on Blu-ray, only on DVD. Needs to be on Blu-ray. Well, look, when it's an you, awfully great film. Instead of watching The Road Killers yeah. and The Warrior, I'd rather watch The Road Warrior. That's a movie I want to see. The Road Warrior. Okay. It would star <laughs> Mel Gibson. Thank you for... And there'd be this guy, humongous that, guy, and there'd this be this is, kid with a boomerang. It's moments like this when people realize that we don't rehearse the show. <laughs> yes, indeed. We don't? No, we sure don't. Because there, 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 no, there was no staff meeting before, <laughs> before the show. Uh, 96 not. Minutes is... Um, it's, it's an interesting film. 96 Minutes is a movie about a carjacking, and you sort of time trip back and forth to find out how exactly these four kids got to the point where they were involved in this carjacking. And what I like about the film is that I do feel as if it was kind of a a pretty a, a relatively su- a sincere attempt to sort of delve into the sociology of white kids versus black kids and crime in, in, in neighborhoods and, and gang members who were trying to get out of life and high schoolers who were trying to do well but getting you know, dragged in, in, into the into onto the into the wrong side. So I feel like there's a there is some stuff there, but um, I think ultimately the movie is so in love with with its 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 badassery that yeah. it just becomes one of those like everybody looks like they're just the biggest badass in the world, and everyone's just posing. And where else are those guys going to get actors, or where are, are those actors going to get work? I know. Well, you know, some of these kids are pretty good, but. Um, I just feel like the uh, whatever sociological points are, are, are attempting to be made uh, gets kind of buried in all of it, it gets buried in the movie's real purpose, which is just yeah. to be exciting and thrilling. And sometimes, by the way, it, it is exciting, but it's kind of an uneasy mix. But it's not so bad. Ninety six minutes is what it is called. Nine, Wade. Ninety six minutes. Not ninety six. Not ninety six tears. The no. song. No. So uh, now, something interesting here with uh, the titles that I'm going to get into, and and I'm going to make mention of something that is is a growing trend now, and this is both good and bad. This is the whole sub-licensing thing that's going on. And and we talked a little bit about the Miramax films that are being sub-licensed to, you know, whatever it is, uh, Lionsgate and Echo Bridge, and, and you basically let those companies do the marketing and the distribution, 
for a fee. They pay the the, live, the owner of the copyright a certain amount because they figure, well, you know, they're not going to be able to do anything with it, and then we'll we'll do the hard work. We'll dig ourselves a little bit of a hole by licensing it, and then we'll dig ourselves out because we know how to market these so, things. So Echo Bridge pays Miramax exactly a certain amount of money. Yes, and for that money, Miramax turns over a print and says, "Have at it." That's it. You know, there's like, we don't need a piece of, you know, whatever. They, and the, the particulars of the deal are different for all of them. And it's a little bit like these old Paramount titles that, uh, that Olive Films is releasing. And Olive does a great job. And Paramount kind of figures, you know what, it would cost us way too much to actually squeeze anything out of this. But throw us a few shekels and run with it. And then Olive goes and they really work their connections. And, and they know how to, you know, get those specialty films out there. Those old Jerry Lewis movies or whatever they may be. And, uh, you know, Twilight Time is another new company that we're going to be covering a lot of their releases soon. They're a really interesting company, uh, and uh, we'll probably be getting to some of that next week. And one of these similar deals recently just happened with Mill Creek. Now, Mill Creek usually releases a lot of straight-to-video stuff, a lot of public domain stuff. But they, uh, they have now cut a deal with Disney to take the, uh, a lot of those old Hollywood pictures and Touchstone films off their hands. Oh, like, uh, which is the one with Bette Midler and Richard Dreyfuss? Oh, we'll be getting there. Oh, really? oh, you mean you mean uh, no, down not Beverly Hills? No, ruthless people. Ruthless people. I'm, it may come. Anyway, the first batch of their of these titles is out. And just a second ago, Mark, I was talking about uh, Darren Serafian, who directed the Road Killers. I mentioned a film. Do you remember? Uh, Star you remember? Wars. No, I mentioned a film he made with Charlie Sheen. Star Wars. You weren't listening, were you? Terminal Velocity. That's right. Terminal Velocity. Here it is on Blu-ray. Star Wars. So we got two Darren Serafian films in one week, and uh, not that it really matters. It's just a novel novelty. Uh, de- little detail. It's a s- curiosity. Uh, but anyway, this is Charlie Sheen doing skydiving. It's one of the last feature films where he actually had a feature film career before he segued over to television, became the highest paid actor in, well, recent television history. Uh, this is not a good film. I did the junket for this, actually. That was the last time I actually saw Charlie and, and caught up on old times. And, uh, you know, it's, it's got its moments, but uh, Nastasha Kinski is also not very good in it. So it's, it's terribly unfortunate. It really is not a great Blu-ray either, and this concerns me somewhat that these titles are not getting a really A-list treatment from, uh, from uh, Mill Creek. But anyway, at least they're getting out there. This other one is uh, DOA, which is the remake of the classic noir. This one was with uh, Meg Ryan and Dennis Quaid, who were married at the time. And uh, this also is not, you know, this is the, uh, basically it's a great concept. It just doesn't work in the remake. Uh, It's about a guy who has to figure out, you know, who poisoned him. And he has 24 hours before he dies. Great idea. Uh, Charlotte Rampling and Daniel Stern are supporting actors in it. And they're actually better than Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan. Good attempt, though. Um, You know, A for effort. Also in this batch is the horribly misguided White Squall which stars uh, Jeff Bridges and was directed by Ridley Scott. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Jeff Bridges and Ridley Scott. Oh, my gosh, what a great pairing. What did they do? What's the movie about? What, what kind of an incredible... It's about sailing. Yes, it is. It's about sailing, Mark. Lame. Ridley Scott and Jeff Bridges got together and said, what are we going to do? We're going to make a movie about sailing. Go rewatch uh, Master and Commander. Uh, it's so unfortunate. But anyway... Um, you know, uh, I, I much, much prefer the Carol Ballard film with uh, Matthew Modine and uh, Jennifer Grey, the title of which is escaping me, the America's Cup film, Cliff oh, Robertson, yes. Cliff Robertson. Wait, wait. Come on. Wait, wait, I'm, I'm going to get it. I'm oh, getting it. That's, that's a good film. I'm getting that's it. That's a good film. I dug that one. I'll let you pull that up, and I'll move on. 
So anyway, White Squall also on Blu-ray, really rather disappointing. Um, another remake of an old film, Born Yesterday, was a ter- another terribly misguided uh, attempt at kind of finding old magic in a new formula, thanks to Hollywood Pictures. Um, Melanie Griffith just didn't handle in this movie. Uh, Don Johnson and John Goodman. Again, there's another husband and wife team, by the way. Wind? Wind! Thank you, Wind. Anyway. Uh, Anyway, this remake of Born Yesterday, not terrific. Melanie Griffith just can't hold the movie together. Don Johnson is okay with a little miscast. John Goodman is the best thing in it. But really not a great remake and not a great Blu-ray. The last two from this batch, however, are really worth talking about. The uh, the first one I'm going to make I'm going to say is New York Stories. I don't know why this is wound up being just sort of thrown out there by Disney. I don't know. I can't fathom that they don't appreciate what a really good movie this is. Uh, this is three different films by great directors who love New York: Woody Allen, Martin Scorsese, and Francis Coppola. They're not all equal. The Woody Allen film is hysterical. It gets a little weird at the end. Yeah, because his his mother's in the sky. It's hysterical. Yes, it's really outrageously funny. Uh, the Coppola film, Life Without Zoe, or Zoe, however you want to pronounce it, um, it co-written actually with a, a very young Sophia. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, this girl is just obsessed with all these girly things. Look what she turned out to be. I take my words back, I eat them. Uh, and then the, uh, the Martin Scorsese one I thought was awesome with Nick Nolte playing that, that painter, that giant canvas. Yes. I really thought that's, a, that's one of the best things Scorsese has done in a long time. Three terrific short films. So uh, that's really worth getting. Again, not the greatest Blu-ray transfer. They really did cut some corners, and uh, the monkeys running the transfer machine did not uh, were not as attentive as I wish they had been. But it, you got to get it. You just got to get it because New York Stories is a really fun film. This last one, Mark. Um, if we only had known then what we know now, come on, Ellen DeGeneres. That is has got to be one of the. Now that we know, that is one of the funniest one sheets. Of all time. Yes, because she is horrified <laughs> at the idea that she's marrying Bill Pullman. But actually, she's horrified that she has to kiss a man. It, it, this is Mr. Wrong. And uh, honestly, I mean, if this is just one of those great moments in movie history where you have to go and revisit the film. This is when they were trying to take Ellen DeGeneres and turn her into a romantic leading lady, a, a comedy queen, the next Lucille Ball or some such nonsense. And um, she was not yet out. No one had any idea that she was gay at the time, or at least nobody outside of Hollywood. It was fairly common knowledge inside. But um, just the idea now that we look at this and Mr. Wrong, I, I just saw this, I got this, I laughed, and I just thought, yeah, he is. Uh, you bet it's Mr. Wrong. They're all Mr. Wrong. Uh, boy, it's just so unfortunate that they tried to forge that. They f- tried to jam that career on her, and no wonder. Well, well, I mean, well, it, look, look at uh, look at John Stewart. You know, they tried. John Stewart had a brief movie career. Oh, I know, I know. And he eventually, he, he just like Ellen DeGeneres found her way I, as a talk show host. I, John Stewart found his way as a. I know a little bit about some of the. Host. I know a little bit about some of the projects that they tried to you know squeeze him into. Round peg in a square hole. Uh, it, it just made no sense at all. This was directed by Nick Castle, it's worth pointing out, the same Nick Castle that we, to whom we owe the uh, last Starfighter. And, uh, wow, boy, is that a different turn. But, uh, you know, the fact that this movie was made at all is a, is a fascinating curiosity. I'm not going to recommend anybody buy this, but really just rent it. Just rent it to, and, and 
be glad that Ellen actually has the career now that she wants as opposed to the career that agents and executives and everybody else tried to impose on her because that was just a catastrophe in the waiting. Um, another couple of interesting films, by the way, from uh, Milestone that I want to make mention of. Milestone just does such good work. We love the people at Milestone. Um, they're so dedicated. They are film archivists and historians, and they dig up these great little... Uh, these great little gems, and they put their heart and soul into it, and it is just, it's great. Uh, and I had some correspondence with them, and this one film is The Troubles We've Seen, The History of Journalism in Wartime, which is by Marcel Ophels. And Ophels did that amazing The Sorrow and the Pity, which is one of the great kind of definitive World War II-era documentaries of all time. He also did Hotel Terminus about uh, Klaus Barbie. He's a, a brilliant filmmaker. And uh, I thought, well, you know, is it going to be a little bit too dry? Oh, no, it isn't. Not even close. Um, this, is, this is really an extraordinary film, and it is maybe the definitive film I have ever seen about war journalism. It was mostly shot in the early 90s during the siege of, uh, of uh, Sarajevo, which is already itself one of the great horrific moments of the last 20 or 30 years. And... Um, it's very troubling because he gets inside the way that the coverage of a war filters how we perceive it. And no matter what we do, no matter how many sources you go to, you can watch you know, CNN and MSNBC and Fox and read the New York Times and watch BBC. And you could, go, you could really try to get all of it and you're still not going to get a complete picture. It's still going to be clouded and shaded by the people who cover it. And unbelievable people show up in this thing. I mean, everyone from Walter Cronkite to uh, uh, Christian Amanpour. It just really is a, a, it is a very, very impressive and uh, sobering look at the uh, history of journalism in wartime. And, uh, you know, it's a long movie. It's 224 minutes long, but worth every single solitary second of it. The other great milestone release this week is uh, Martin and Osa Johnson's Simba. If you have never heard of Simba, and I was not that familiar with Simba, you're missing out. This is from 1928, and uh, this is one of those great uh, moments in ethnographic filmmaking that I always love discovering. And it goes right up there with, uh, you know, even though Flaherty kind of, you know, faked and staged a lot of that stuff in A Nook of the North, I love it. I love Grass, A Nation's Quest for Survival. I love all of those ethnographic documentaries from the silent era and the, uh, the early sound era. Essentially, uh, Martin and Osa Johnson were explorers who filmed their, their travels and their explorations, and they were, you know, conservationists, filmmakers, explorers. And uh, in 1928, this was the first that a lot of people had seen of Africa. This exposed Africa and uh, the indigenous peoples of Africa, African wildlife. It, it really made it real for a lot of people. This was a hugely successful film at the time. And it is so fascinating in hindsight. It really is. It is, uh, it is, a, it is a, 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 an extraordinary piece of film history. It is an artifact. It is a treasure. And it is something everybody should have on their, uh, their film history shelf. Absolutely. Martin and Osa Johnson's Simba. Do not miss it. A must-see. Wade, uh, another interesting film uh, is A Necessary Death. This was uh, written and directed by Daniel Stamm, who went on to do the last... Exorcism, and uh, I don't know that Stan really had worked out his uh, filmmaking chops at this point, but he does have an interesting premise, which is a, a documentary film crew wants to follow, uh, find, and follow 
uh, a man or a woman uh, who wants to commit suicide. So they would, the documented crew would follow this man and woman or woman who want to, wants to commit suicide through the whole process, and you would get a sense of what a man or woman's final days are really like. They wind up finding a guy who's dying of cancer, and he agrees to be filmed. And, uh, you know, Stam at that point hadn't really honed his craft enough to be able to sell the idea that it's a really a documentary crew. It looks a little uh, like it's a filmmaker, like a narrative filmmaker making a documentary. It doesn't look authentic in that sense, but it's a pretty intriguing premise, and uh, to his credit, he doesn't turn it into a monster movie. Uh, they do get into the ethical problems with that and how people you know, kind of reject the idea out of hand and how the crew kind of gets to like the guy even though he's about to kill himself. So it's really not bad. Um, it's called A Necessary Death by uh, Daniel Stamm. It's on DVD, not Blu-ray, Ooh, may I say. Very nice. I didn't really like... Um I didn't really like his other film, but the Last um, Exorcism. No, you not really. Loved that. No, not really. But I, this, this looks. I, I, I'll, I'll give this a. I'll give this a shot. Why not? Give it a whirl. A whirl. Where does that come from? That expression. A whirl. Give yeah. it a whirl. Yeah. Uh, like who gives? Who give? Who was who the first person to give something a whirl, and why were they whirling it? You know what? I'm I wonder going, about these things. Yeah, you know what? That's why uh, you have no life. That's very true. Uh, we've got. We were talking earlier about these sublicensing deals, and uh, Olive Films and Paramount were one of them. And we've got a, a fascinating collection of releases from Olive on Blu-ray this week. Uh, three westerns, two of them directed by Byron Haskin. Uh, Byron Haskin was uh, kind of a mid-level director. He did a, he did three westerns with uh, Edmund O'Brien, and two of them I'm going to mention right now: uh, Denver and Rio Grande, Rio Grande, and Silver City. Uh, again, you know, Edmund O'Brien was kind of a mid-level star at the time. Byron Haskin, really a, strictly a B-level Western director. And there's nothing terribly spectacular about these films other than the nostalgia value. And uh, it's okay. You know, you, you get the kind of, the, you get good actors and recognizable actors from the time. Yvonne DiCarlo, of course, is uh, wonderful in Silver City, as is Barry Fitzgerald, who is much better as kind of a, a crusty old prospectory dude than he is as a uh, as a as a priest in the uh, Bing Crosby thing, but um, you know you know nothing spectacular here with with either of these films. You, you have to sort of be a fan of the era. Uh, Sterling Hayden also shows up in Denver and Rio Grande, and uh, Sterling Hayden kind of creeps me out because oh, he is the best. He's the best. I love him. I love him in all of Kubrick's he's stuff. Just a big hulking, strange bearded but, man. But you know, there is a classic. There's a classic YouTube video of Sterling Hayden being interviewed by Tom Snyder. Yes, on the Late Late Show. Oh yeah. And Sterling had the huge beard. Was smoking a cigarette. Yeah. Didn't care what he said. <laughs> swearing up and down. Is is good? great. And my mother was almost his nanny. Almost. Tom Snyder's nanny. No, uh, Sterling Hayden's name. Almost, seriously. Wow. She interviewed for the job and... Uh, Thankfully didn't get it. No, did, chose not to take it. Uh, and then the uh, third Western here is a Nicholas Ray Western, which is a lot better. Nicholas Ray, you know, was, look, I mean, rebel without a cause, king of kings. He, he was one of the good guys. And uh, this stars John Ca- uh, James Cagney, Vivica Lindforce, and the extraordinarily disappointing John Derrick. Another connection to my family. My uh, father taught John Derrick, I'm almost embarrassed to say. Clearly, John Derrick didn't learn a whole lot. This is called Run for Cover. It's a a fairly minor Nicholas Ray film from 1955, but James Cagney is just always absolutely amazing. Um, 
here he plays a convict who becomes uh, the sheriff of this small town. And there's not a lot to the film, really, but uh, it's just, you know, it, it's, I mean, it's not high noon by any stretch of the imagination, but somehow Cagney always brings the, the weight, the gravitas. You oh, know? yeah. He just, he just brings it, and it's a beautiful thing to watch. And then the last of these films, this is a totally fascinating, weird little uh, peculiarity that I, I had totally forgotten existed. This is from 1961. Uh, this is a Paramount film directed by John Cassavetes called Too Late Blues with Bobby Darren and Stella Stevens. Now, Mark, I'm going to say that again. John Cassavetes directed Bobby Darren and Stella Stevens in a studio film. I can't imagine three of them even in the same room. Isn't that bizarre? Having met. This was the second film that Cassavetes made, so he's not sort of yet Cassavetes. Um, he made Shadows which caught a lot of attention, and that was very much a Cassavetes film, but then he took a studio gig and uh, just made this extremely unusual jazz drama. And it's, you know, a lot of people were trying to make these quasi-noirs at the time, and uh, jazz was, you know, it was, it, was, it was like a hip thing again. It was hip in Europe. It was a sort of beatnik culture. And um, Stella Stevens, you know, is gorgeous in this thing, and Bobby Darren is a surprisingly good actor doesn't really feel like a Cassavetes film, but uh, you know what? It's, hey, it, it, it's a real novelty. It's a great little uh, kind of fascinating curiosity, and I would recommend people definitely check it out, maybe even buy it. But best of all, Mark, you know who's also in this, surprisingly young at the time? Bloody Seymour. John Cassavetes cannot leave that guy alone. Seymour Cassell. He shows Seymour up in Cassell. everything. We love Seymour. Is nuts. Yes, he is. We we worked on a film that Seymour was in, and he's he's out of his mind. Uh, Wade's gonna look up some uh, viewer viewer. Why do I, you every week I say every time we say too much we have Letterman? Mail, it's, it's too I, much Letterman because I, I work in TV, my day yeah. job. Yeah. Anyway, while Wade looks up some listener mail, I'll talk about a um, a, a film that I, I just I pegged for horribleness, but wound up being pretty good. Called Goon. Goon is a hockey comedy, and I don't like hockey, and I don't like Sean William Scott, but I did like this film, I have to say. I don't know how they did it. Uh, it's about a, uh, a bouncer who wants to be a hockey player, but of course he can't skate. But uh, he does have an amazing right hook. When he punches somebody, they stay down. And when that is discovered, uh, he turns into, he becomes a hockey enforcer. He gets signed by a team, a minor league that? team. Becomes a hockey enforcer. How about that? Hockey enforcer means that they skate. Those are the, those are the players that skate around and just beat people up. That's yeah. pretty much what they do. He becomes a goon. And the movie is surprisingly sweet. Uh, the hockey stuff, you can tell. It was directed by uh, Michael Douse, who you can tell knows his hockey. And you know what? I think this thing is sweet. I think it was funny. I think it's probably the best hockey movie ever made other than Slapshot. And it was a total surprise. Who were the I, twins in Slapshot? Huh? The twins, Slapshot. Uh, John and Steve. No, no, I don't know. I can't remember. Twin? Huh? What are I you can't remember. About? The twins, the two that in Slapshot, the two wacky. It's been too long. Okay. I, 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 all I remember in, of Slapshot is that it was with Paul Newman. And uh, Melinda. And Melinda Dillon. That's right. Uh, there is a movie uh, on Blu-ray right now called London Boulevard. Now, London Boulevard was uh, directed by William Monaghan. Now, William Monaghan... Uh, won an Oscar for writing The Departed. And I like his writing. I think it's very hard-boiled, tough writing. It's kind of fun. And I think that London Boulevard never really got the uh, proper didn't. release. It should have got. If this it movie didn't. was directed by, like, Guy Ritchie, 
it would have been blown out uh, in, in 1,500 theaters. Yep, I agree. But it's London Boulevard, and it's uh, William Monaghan, and it's a tough sell because it's violent. Colin Farrell, not what he used to be. Keira nope. Knightley is not really accepted in these sorts of roles. And uh, wound up kind of getting dumped, but it's a good film. London Boulevard. It's on Blu-ray. It looks pretty good. It's definitely one of those, you know, gang, you know, gangster thriller type movies. So but it's, um, it's 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 hard hitting and it's tough and it's realistic and it, uh, it 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 it's not new, but it's extremely well done and it compensates. Yep. All right, we're gonna, gonna got some listener mail now. Uh, our good friend Alexander Berlika from the from Grodno in the Republic of Belarus. We go far and wide here, Mark. We we are globetrotters. Uh, you know what? I'm gonna go out on a limb. And say that he is actually he lives in St. Louis. But he wants us to think he lives in Belarus, so that you know we think, "Wow, the podcast goes no, far I, and wide." I can tell you, he, he's in Belarus, and I'll tell you how I know this because uh, the there are the wee hours of the morning. If you go on the Digigods page, all the European listeners are suddenly suddenly conversing with each other and updating. David Bier and uh, Alexander Berlika, and there's a whole there's a whole European conversation going on at hours when the rest of us are asleep. I don't buy it. You're all liars. It's fascinating. You're all we're a 24 hour uh, phenomenon. Anyway, Alexander writes and said, "I posted this a uh, question on the Facebook page, but I guess it lo- got lost among other posts." I remember a while ago you and Mark reminisced about the start of the podcast. You mentioned that you have all the episodes of the old Box Office DVD Roundup uh, podcast archived. Here is my question: Are there any way that they can be made available to the listeners? I managed to hear about a dozen old shows, and they were terrific. I'm sure I'm not the only one who'd love to hear the, how the Digigods began. Um, I don't have that stuff. Do you? I do, yeah. It's just a question of, uh, of rights. I, I'm not sure what the, <laughs> what the ownership situation is with those things. You, you, you actually have old episodes. I've got them all. You got them all? I got them all. I have nothing. I got them all. Really? Yeah. I want to hear them. Yeah, all right. <laughs> we sound ridiculous. The, origi- the, the very first episode, you realize, is a train wreck. Is it? I don't think you remember how we tried to do that. I don't. I, oh, uh, no. What, what, was I on the phone? You were on the phone. Fu- there were three of us. It was you and Tim and me. We were all on the phone in different places, and we were trying to Skype and record on Skype, and it was just it was like a dry run. It was this very bizarre thing that was almost never meant to be heard. It was very peculiar. Uh, speaking of your, your uh, recipe, Walter Gass, longtime listener, writes us and says, first, he's actually going through the whole recipe. Cripes. Second, any recipe for an ingredient that involves buying the actual ingredient bugs me. Example, a cracker recipe that starts with you buying crackers. WTF. Well, the whole idea is that the thing was easy to make. Third, now I want a cookie. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Uh, Also, uh, 70s reactionary Al from San Francisco. By the way, regarding the crackers, you realize that Daniel Buckley actually made the crackers. Yeah. Took them to a party. And people love the crackers. Some even ask for the recipe for the crackers. Oh, I know. And I'm just saying oh, that Daniel has proven you just a Scrooge. I'm a, I'm a Scrooge. So uh, 70s reactionary Al up in San Francisco, counterculture capital of the world, writes us and says, Wade, just heard the news of AMC being swallowed up by Chinese company Wanda, owned uh, by the world's 15th richest man. Uh, the article in the LA Times references the modifying of the new version of Red Dawn as an early sign of China's influence over content of U.S. films, i.e. soft power. Not that I have any emotional investment in contemporary Hollywood product. I'm nevertheless curious if American mainstream fare could stoop any lower in substance as a result of this major change of distribution power. Uh, by the way, I'm of Chinese descent, and yet many aspects of post-revolutionary China do not sit well with me, despite my reverence for Godard. Um, you know, I, 
I think it's a stupid move, and my uh, an old professor of mine, uh, Howard Suber, thinks it's a stupid move as well, and I really respect anything that Suber says. I, I think they're looking for prestige, and I think they're going to find it uh, a very difficult business to be in. And I'm not sure that the Chinese are going to continue to have a taste for uh, distribution with AMC. They're, they, I don't think they know how to handle an American uh, exhibitor. Well, but the thing is, is that I China does know how to release movies. So you might as well buy your way into the business because yeah. China, they, nobody in China knows how to run what I, what a movie I do, theater chain. No, what I think this is is an opening for another major exhibitor to emerge. I think this is a chance for somebody to really step up and, uh, and steal AMC's thunder because they're going to be mismanaged like crazy. Even though they're keeping the American management team. It's not going to work. And then uh, we got an email from Ben. Good old Ben. Who writes us and says, "Um, I have seen some negative comments online reacting to the press preview of The Hobbit due to the fact that the 48 frames per second makes the movie look worse. What do you think about this new doubled frame rate and will it actually affect the enjoyment of movies? Is the actual story characters and movie enough to overcome this visual detraction? Are there any other benefits or problems with 48 FPS? I'm looking forward to the movie, and I thought a new frame rate would be interesting. But these reports just have me worried over the format and the movie. Thanks. Um, I think anything other than 24 frames per second is idiotic. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of reasons why uh, 24 frames was settled on originally. Some of it was artistic. Some of it was technical. A lot of it had to do with uh, synchronizing to sound. There were a variety of different frame rates that were tried in the silent era. Uh, including 18 and 15, and some even went as high as, uh, I think I think they even tried 28 at some point. But uh, here's the bottom line. If you're, things just, things that are fake, like drama and acting and all the artifice of movies, just look more convincing at 24 frames per second than when suddenly it looks like the news or a soap opera or a reality show. Um, it just, it suddenly becomes cheesy. And I have a feeling The Hobbit is going to look like a Sid and Marty Croft show. I really do. Well, it's almost like when you buy those, um, when you buy the, the the TVs that have the uh, the two forty hertz setting. Yeah, right. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, it's terrible. It, Every, it, everyone I know hates it. It looks like a Mexican soap opera. It does. It looks like a, yeah, absolutely. And you know, when when video cameras started having twenty four p modes to look more film like, why didn't they take that as a cue? I mean, this is all just basically so that you don't get motion artifacts when you shoot 3D. Well, big deal is, I mean, is that everything now in movies? Oh, my gosh, James Cameron is having a cow because uh, you're, you're getting motion artifacts when someone is panning in 3D. Well, too damn bad. That has nothing to do with whether or not the acting is credible. You're killing the acting in order to make the 3D work. I mean, that's just stupid. It's, it's, that, no, it's, it's great. It's idiotic. No, 3D, sh- 3D should take precedent over every other filmmaking uh, aspect. And Tony Washburn writes us and says, Gentlemen, Tony the long-haul trucker here. I'm so glad we have long-haul truckers listening to us. It makes me feel like we're not boring. Just wanted to tell Mark that our family has been enjoying the spicy cracker recipe. Mm-hmm. That's right. For about two years now. What? I want to be the one <laughs> to introduce you to that. It's, it's like crack at Christmas. My mother-in-law has the worst habit. You've tried with uh, saltiness. Try it with Ritz or Club crackers. Anyway. Ooh, Ritz crackers. You know yeah. why? That's good. You know why? Because Ritz crackers are kind of buttery. So he says, uh, I wondered I like if you that. guys might share some thoughts on Ridley Scott and his films. I'm looking forward to Prometheus coming out in a few days. I've been trying to find interviews with him from various years, trying to get a feel for the way he thinks and his particular style. I seem to find a few of his movies are among my all-time favorites. I'm speaking of Blade Runner, Alien, Legend, and Gladiator. These films, while very stylistic, are often flawed. Um, anyway, 
Mark, thoughts? Ridley Scott. Uh, as of this recording, we have not seen it. However, we're seeing it tomorrow night. We are going to see it tomorrow night. Yes, All I know is. Um, but generally speaking about him in general, I mean, you know, Prometheus isn't going to change my opinion of where Ridley Scott is right now. Well, I think he's hoping I, to like I, it. I think but, he's lost it. I mean, he's kind of yeah. lost his, uh, his gold. You know, he's 74 years old. I know. It's just weird. Like, you can't imagine this guy. Is, uh, he looks like, he looks really? like he, he, he'd kick your ass. He was in his 40s when he directed his first film. Well, because, you know, he was like, he, yeah, he was like 39 years old, and he was seeing all yeah. of his contemporaries at the time. Make, Alan Parker was making films. They all came out of... Uh, commercial. Dave, out well, of Dave, well, David Putnam's commercial right, house. Right. Adrian Lyne. Well, uh, Adrian Lyne. All of them. Adrian Lyne. Hugh Hudson. Right. Adrian Lyne and uh, the other one um, that I just said. Um, Alan Parker. Alan Parker. They were making films. Mm-hmm. They had graduated to movies. Yep. And Ridley Scott is saying, why can't he, I make a film? And he he, he and Tony, sacrificed he, a lot to make The Duelist because he wanted oh, to make that film. He and, he and Tony were the last two. They were the last two. All right, Mark, you know what, it, what, uh, what it's time for right now, isn't it? <gasps> Are you, do I get to sing the song? Sing the song. It's Fox Box. Hi, I'm Mark and Wade. Chris from Albany, New York again. A couple more quick questions for you. Wade, I hear you especially refer to how well a movie was photographed. So what, if any, difference is there between photography and cinematography as it pertains to film? And also, what's the correct pronunciation? Biopic or biopic? The former makes more sense to me as a portmanteau of biographical picture, but I've definitely heard both. So, wonder what your take is on it. Love the show. Keep up the good work. Big thanks to uh, Chris Tsai, who has written us or uh, sent us VoxBox before. Uh, First off, uh, it's biopic. Everybody says biopic. Biopic sounds like something that you're going to have done when you go to see the the proctologist. It it sounds like an ocular disease. Yeah, it sounds sounds like some kind of a procedure. It's very uncomfortable sounding. Um, So I would say biopic. And uh, as to the first question, um, there really isn't any difference between photography and cinematography. When you, cinematography specifically is the, the craft of photography for motion pictures. But you know, people will often use photography interchangeably because it's just dealing with a camera. So it's photography, when you talk about photography in a motion picture, it's really the same thing, but the correct term is cinematography. Uh, so it's a, it's a bit of a misnomer. I'm as guilty as anyone else of making that, uh, that mistake. And so I will endeavor to correct that in the future. Uh, all right, Mark, we, uh, we got a bunch of television we weren't able to get through, but that uh, the television and the music will, of course, be on the docket for next week. And in the meantime, anyone who wants to send us VoxBox or uh, listener mail, do so at gods at digigods.com. We answer uh, all the questions that we possibly can. If we don't get back to you right away, we'll get back to you eventually. Ask us anything. Slander us. Insult us. Uh, you know, we don't care. We have, we have no ego. We have no shame. We don't care. Mark? I have only cookies. Thank you. Mark has only cookies. See you guys next week.